Hello once again, everyone. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and welcome again to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. Each week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip back in time down memory lane and bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago, exactly as it happened, as it was reported by some of the uh, greatest sports writers of all time. In this episode, we are in the week of April 26th to May 2nd, 1971. Fantasy sports players, you know basketball season won't be around forever, so get in on all the action now with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. DraftKings is giving new players a free shot at a million dollars in total prize money. Claim your free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes when using the code THPN during sign-up. Playing daily fantasy basketball simple. Just pick your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Feel the sweat like never before. Every dunk, every steal, every assist means so much more with the DraftKings Daily Fantasy lineup. And baseball fans, we haven't forgot about you. You may have missed out on season-long fantasy, so now's the time to get in on all the daily fantasy action where DraftKings has even more ways to make it rain. With DraftKings, payday comes every day for players. So what are you waiting for? Head to the DraftKings app now. Download the DraftKings app now and use the code TH. PN during sign up this week. DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at millions of dollars in total prize money. That's code THPN and you get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. A minimum $5 deposit is required and eligibility restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com for details. In addition to DraftKings, we are also sponsored by Newspapers.com, where we get most of the content for the historical facts that we bring to you each week, and by the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. And on a personal note, I am moving back to my hometown, Port Colborne, very, very shortly. If you like what we do every day on Twitter in our At Hockey 50 Years account and each week here on the Hockey Podcast Network, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe to the podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's episode, but we have some very interesting uh, special content available only to subscribers. We're working right now on a feature about Scotty Bowman and all the circumstances that surrounded his leaving the St. Louis Blues and we'll talk about that just a little bit later in the podcast. So this week, 50 years ago, was a crucial one in the 1971 Stanley Cup playoffs. Both semifinal series were tied at two games apiece. One completely expected, the other uh Total shock. No one expected the Montreal-Minnesota series to be tied at two games apiece after four contests. Everyone knew that the Rangers and Blackhawks were two very evenly matched teams and that a long, hard-fought series was, was completely expected. And through the first four games, even though there was a couple of lopsided scores, the series was basically that, close and very even. 
But having the upstart Minnesota North Stars somehow managing to draw even with Montreal in their seven-game set after four contests, that was literally unthinkable before the series started. But the plucky Stars, however, got it done on hustle and desire, and as veteran Charlie Burns of the North Stars put it, we wanted the show, we weren't going to be run out of the rink. And the North Stars were by no means run out of the rink as the rest of the series would illustrate. A little news from around uh, hockey to start the week before we get into actually reporting on the games in the playoffs here. Uh, Bobby Orr, we, we talked about this before, had was said to have signed a five-year deal with the Boston Bruins, a new contract that would be worth a million dollars to him. That's five years, $200,000 apiece. Don't forget, back in 1971, that was a lot of money for a professional athlete and unheard of for a hockey player. Well, it was reported he signed the deal. Then it was reported he did not. Well, Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star, the great sports writer, one of the, probably the dean of sports writers in Canada, he got to Alan Eagleson, an old friend of his. That's Orr's mouthpiece. Everyone 50 years later knows about Alan Eagleson. And Eagleson uh, related what his version of the correct story on Orr's contract actually was. Milt Dunno wrote that Bobby Orr doesn't want a $1 million from the Boston Bruins even if they're ready to give him a gold-plated key to their money vaults. The Bruins haven't made that supreme sacrifice, of course, although there was a story out of Boston that Orr actually had signed a five-year contract at 200 Gs a year. It's a nice round figure, and a lot of people don't get around to earning a million dollars before they're 90 years old. Or we'd be doing that before he's 28. So what's so terrifying about this idea of a five-year contract anyway? Al Eagleson, the lawyer who has negotiated every contract which Orr has signed, admits he likes the prospect himself. And why wouldn't he? However, it was Eagleson's client who disagreed with the idea. At first, Eagleson wasn't sure he understood why. Now, Eagleson tells us he thinks he knows. Al says when you're 23, five years seems like a long, long time. That was Bobby's reaction to a five-year contract. He said, Al, I don't like the idea of being tied up for the next five years. Eagleson went on to say that if that's how Orr feels and continues to feel, they won't be signing any contract for a five-year term. There isn't much doubt in my mind, Eagleson says, that Orr will be around for a long, long time. Barring injury, he'll probably be playing hockey until he's 40. The Eagle says that Orr just loves to play the game. And at this stage, though, he's not sure in his own mind that he wants to commit himself until he's 28 years old. But Al Eagleson finishes off by saying he'll honor whatever contract he signs. You can be sure of that. Too bad hindsight is 2020 and that Bobby couldn't see into the future uh, just what Al Eagleson really had in store for him. We have a little more of what can be considered uh, really off-season news. Uh, and this is from a team that didn't make the playoffs, the Los Angeles Kings. Now, Bob Pulford, who will win a place in the Hockey Hall of Fame for his work as a player for the Maple Leafs for so many years, was a leader for the Los Angeles Kings in this which was his first season 
for that West Coast team. He was a mentor to just about everyone on the club, and why wouldn't he be? Lots of Stanley Cups, much experience, leadership qualities. Well, as the Kings were holding their management and coaching meetings, and basically the whole staff meetings, to discuss their off-season strategy, Pulford was included in all discussions, the only player to be doing so. In fact, we learn that when Pulley was actually traded by the Maple Leafs to Los Angeles last September, part of the uh, Kings pitch to entice Pulford to go to Los Angeles was that he was told he would likely be the team's next coach. So including him in the organizational meetings is just a natural step in that progression. There's another major story going around the hockey world this week, and we'll talk about that near the end of the show after we tell you what's gone on in the two playoff series. Big story wasn't resolved quite this week. Well, we'll get to the Minnesota-Montreal series first. It was to continue, tied at two games apiece Tuesday evening at the Forum in Montreal. And after the game, it appeared that the universe had given notice that it had righted itself as the Canadians cruised to a convincing 6-1 to win over the North Stars. At least that's what most folks thought when they opened their newspapers on Wednesday morning and uh, saw the lopsided 6-1 score. But the reality was actually just a little bit different and Red Burnett of the Toronto Star fills us in with uh, his neutral viewpoint. He is neither with uh, Montreal or Minnesota papers and he gives us a pretty good idea about what actually went on in, in Montreal. Canadians are riding into the Stanley Cup final on the shoulders the right one badly bruised of rookie goalkeeper Ken Dryden. And if he can repeat last night's performance, the Montreal club will eliminate Minnesota North Stars in Bloomington on Thursday evening. To say Dryden was sensational in last night's game is an understatement. His work was as fine as anything seen by one observer, actually this observer, Red Burnett, in 30 years of National Hockey League playoffs. It seems strange to single out a goalkeeper as a deciding factor when his team wins 6-1, to one, but that actually was the story. You see, the Habs wouldn't have even been alive to explode for five third period goals if Dryden hadn't robbed the gutty North Stars blind in the first 40 minutes of the game. The Habs now lead the best of seven semifinal set, three games to two, and look to be home and cooled out simply because they have Ken Dryden, not to mention an edge in talent at the five other positions that play the game. But the Habs have no edge in heart, desire, and guts. No team has given more in a playoff series than these North Stars have in 1971. Dryden's Brinks job last night made one people of a certain vintage think that you were watching a young Bill Dernan as a six foot four law student brought arms, legs, and shoulders in front of the shots when seemingly trapped hopelessly out of position. Floyd Curry, who coached Dryden with the Voyagers in the American Hockey League before he was promoted to the parent hab, said, I told Sammy Pollock when he took Dryden from us that he had just insured himself of a Stanley Cup. This kid is that 
good. Henry Richard spoke of the aforementioned Bill Dernan, saying, He reminds me of Durham, the way he gets in front of shots to make impossible saves. He drops down like Dernan, and then he murders you with surprise moves from seemingly impossible positions. It's great to know when you're playing the game that Dryden is behind you. Minnesota General Manager Ren the Bird Blair said, Our guys played a tremendous first 50 minutes and came up empty because of that Dryden. That guy was simply unconscious. But we might still be playing if Barry Gibbs didn't take that stupid third period penalty for tripping in the center zone with both teams a man short. Pete Mahovlich, who makes a career out of haunting me, scored while Gibbs was off, and that penalty and the goal broke our backs. The North Stars left the forum last night with a heads held high and eyes flashing defiance, insisting they'd square the set back in Bloomington on Thursday, and then they'd knock the Canadians out back in Montreal in the seventh game, which will be either on Saturday or Sunday. North Stars coach Jackie Gordon said they thought we were dead after they beat us in the first and third games. Gordon went on to say that they uh, were wrong and will shake this defeat off like we shook the other ones off. They didn't deserve the five-goal margin. They got hot goaltending and they got all the breaks and that's why they won. Pete Mahovlich, who was the game's first star, said, We wore them down by hitting them for the first time in this series. We're going to have to repeat that dose in the sixth game as well. Pete went on to say that there's no way he wants two more games with those characters. They're way too much. They never stop skating or checking. Pete said, I'd sooner play Boston than Minnesota. Dryden's work on the evening was simply magnificent. He beat Jude Druin, Bill Goldsworthy, and Bobby Russo in the first period, and he took sure goals away from Goldsworthy and Russo in the middle frame, and he stoned Teddy Hampson with his best save of the night in the third period, with the Canadians leading by 2-1. to one. Dryden sustained that sore shoulder we mentioned uh, on a Bobby Russo shot in, in the middle period. The puck hit him on the a point of the right shoulder and it knocked him to the ice. But before the whist play was whistled dead, he actually managed to make another save while he was in great pain. Montreal trainer came onto the ice and worked on him for about three minutes with the referee finally telling him to take his place in goal or go to the bench and get a replacement between the pipes. I knew it was just a bruise and would be okay if we could work out the numbness, Dryden said. I stayed in because I knew it, the pain couldn't get any worse, and it would have been unfair to leave and then force Rogie Vashon to go in at that point in the game. Dryden would ask if the uh, severely bruised shoulder was going to affect his play in, in the final two games of the series. Ken's answer was... It'll wreck my shuffleboard game for a couple days, but it won't bother my goaltending. Another veteran Canadian sports writer, Jim Coleman, offered this assessment of uh, the crucial play in uh, last night's game and how he saw it. Coleman writes, A dinky little tripping penalty imposed on Minnesota's Barry Gibbs at 9.49 of the final period broke open a tensely played hockey match here in Montreal last evening. Canadians were skating furiously to protect a 2-1 lead when Gibbs unpardonably tripped Rajan directly beneath the long, lean nose of referee 
John Ashley. Referee Ashley charitably ignores many minor infractions in the closing stages of tightly contested hockey games, but he would have been a candidate for a white cane if he'd overlooked Ull's sprawling body at his feet. 19 seconds after Gibbs was penalized, Peter Mahovlich tipped in Guy Lapointe's low 30-foot screamer, giving Montreal the 3-1 lead. Then the flowing tide swept over the tiring Minnesota North Stars. Within the next four and a half minutes, John Ferguson, Frank Mahovlich, and Ivan Cornwaille added three more goals to give Lake Canadian a 6-1 victory and 3-2 lead in games in this Stanley Cup semifinal. The score flattered Lake Canadian, who really had been unable to establish clear superiority until Hull was dumped on his belly. Nevertheless, there was no disposition on the part of anyone to award 22-year-old Barry Gibbs a set of goat horns for taking the penalty which opened the floodgates. Let's face it, said Minnesota North Star's Ren Blair, uh, rarely speaking the truth. Well, not really rarely, but you know how the general managers are these days. Ren Blair said, man for man, a Canadian are much superior to our team. If every one of our players goes out at his absolute peak speed for 60 minutes, we can win the odd game from them. But we missed our chances in the first period tonight, and we were tiring badly in the final 15 minutes. Blair went on to say that referee Ashley had to call the penalty on Barry Gibbs, but Gibbs is only a kid. He was desperately tired and he just reached for Ull. The ironic part of it was that Ull had lost control of the puck at that point and he wasn't likely to cause any damage if Barry hadn't dumped him. That was Jim Coleman in assessing the crucial play last night and a pretty uh, realistic account by a general manager, Ren Blair, of just how this thing is going. So it was back to Bloomington, Minnesota, directly between Minneapolis and St. Paul, for Game 6 with the North Stars and their fans looking for and hoping for another bounce-back miracle in order to force a seventh game, which, of course, would be back in Montreal. Everyone knows, and it was demonstrated perfectly in that Montreal-Boston series, that darn near anything can happen in a seventh game. Neither the Canadians uh, nor the North Stars could ever predict what would happen, and the Habs did not want to take that chance. The North Stars got some good news before game six. Well, it was good news for them, not for Canadians. Montreal's John Ferguson, the most intimidating man in hockey, would not play in game six because of an injury and the Stars fans thought maybe, just maybe, the fates were smiling upon them. Unfortunately, it was not to be. It was a game but tired and basically outmatched North Stars team that gave it a good try. They gave it their all in Game 6. But in the end, the Habs prevailed by the narrowest of margin, a score of 3-2, to two, and Dwayne Netlin of the Minneapolis Tribune gives us uh, the game report for this one. The challengers went down like champions Thursday night despite the wrenching finish of a tying goal that came just a moment too late. The North Stars digging in for one last runch, rush against Montreal sprung Ted Hampson loose for a goal at the final siren that referee Bill Friday disallowed on the premise that it was scored after official time had expired. So the Montreal Canadiens who had to fight for their lives last 
last night against a glorious Minnesota effort, escaped from the Metropolitan Sports Center ice with a 3-2 victory that eliminated the North Stars in the sixth game of their Stanley Cup semifinal series. Hampson's play occurred with goalie Cesar Maniego removed in favor of a sixth skater as the North Stars, battling the clock, swarmed into the Montreal zone. Jude Druin took a Hampson pass on a skate and then the puck came back to Hampson who had an open net after goalie Ken Dryden went down on Druin's bid. The crowd of 15,422, largest ever for a playoff game at the Met Center, exploded in a crescendo of sound that was quickly transformed into a massive groan when Friday waved off the apparent goal. The green light was on when the shot went in, Friday explained, and that means time was out. The North Stars accepted the bitter verdict after an initial rush at Friday and then filed into formation for the ancient Stanley Cup ritual of congratulating each rival player at the center of the ice. Canadians Peter Mahovlich remarked that he was never so glad in all his life to see a green light come on in a hockey game. Pete said... We got out of this one by the skin of our teeth. We played well, but those guys, they stayed right with us all the way. The North Stars have recorded a tradition of hard skating and tight checking throughout their Stanley Cup competition this spring, but never have they played more courageously than they did last night. Not only were they without injured defenseman Doug Moans, who missed the entire Montreal series, but Danny Grant's right elbow was so painfully bruised that he had to grip his stick with his left hand only. As a result, Grant, one of Minnesota's main snipers, did not get off a shot on goal in the game, although he was very much a part of the action on each of his shifts. He couldn't shoot the puck. That's Danny's game. I'm disappointed the way it ended, Minnesota coach Jackie Gordon said, but I'm proud of the way we went down. This was a great effort against a great team. Montreal's eventual margin of victory had been created by Rajon's goal at 13:29 of the second period, while each team was a man short. Maniego made a save on Henry Richard's shot, but before the puck could be cleared, Uhl raced in to flick it home. The North Stars missed a chance to tie it up at 3-3 at 17:02 of that period when J.P. Parise, taking a Bobby Russo perfect pass with an open net in front of him, couldn't quite get off his shot. Asked about that play, Parise said, well, the puck was jumping a little. I tried to steer it in, but it hopped away from my stick. I'll be reliving that play for the rest of the summer. Through the first two periods, the emphasis was primarily on checking by both teams. Each of the clubs got off nine shots in the first period and 16 in the second. In the third period, though, the Stars had to gamble and they had to open up play. Canadians, who functioned best in this type of hockey, nearly broke the game wide open half a dozen times, but Maniego come up with half a dozen incredible saves to keep the Stars in the contest. The North Stars took the first lead of the game at 9.50 the opening period when Charlie Burns converted on a rush by Murray Oliver and defenseman Tommy Reed. With Grant in the penalty box for tripping Phil Roberto, Canadians tied it up at 16 minute mark on a power play goal by Ivan Cornway after Maniego made the original save on J.C. Tremblay's point shot. Claude LaRose capitalized on another Minnesota puck clearing failure at 107 of the second frame 
frame, but the North Stars surged back as Reed carried the puck in and Druin ripped home his rebound at 9:18. What a series, sighed the peerless John Bellable. They never stopped coming at us. The legendary Minnesota sports columnist Sid Hartman got to Sammy Pollock and Al McNeil to get their reactions to the series end. Pollock, the Montreal general manager, paid Minnesota a sincere tribute after the Canadians eliminated the Stars. The Stars gave us a tougher test than the fabled Boston Bruins, said Pollock. Little shot at his divisional rivals there. Pollock said if the Stars had Doug Moans, who of course was injured, available, it might have been Minnesota in the Stanley Cup final instead of us. Pollock went on to say that he didn't know how a team could play better than the Minnesota squad. Four years ago, Sam says, I predicted the North Stars would be the first expansion team to win the Stanley Cup, and they nearly proved me a prophet this season. Pollock finished by saying the North Stars will be a power in the league next season. Montreal coach McNeil agreed with Pollock's appraisal. Al said we had to play our best hockey to beat Minnesota. The Stars were tough for us all year and they hit their peak in the playoff. McNeil said there was no doubt about the North Stars goal by Ted Hampson being scored after time ran out and the green light went on. But McNeil had an observation that nobody else had made. He said the worst part of the play was that Danny Grant of the North Stars was obviously offside and that wasn't whistled. Imagine how we would have felt if the goal had beat the clock to tie the game after an obvious offside infraction. McNeil went on to say, Our goalie Ken Dryden was great, but he wasn't any better than Cesar Maniego of the North Stars, who was their most valuable player. So the series is over, and the Canadians would now await the winner of the Chicago-New York series, and we're going to tell you about that right now. As the Rangers and Blackhawks awaited the fifth game to be played in Chicago, a Hawks player made some major news, a little bit of controversy in the Blackhawks camp. In an unprecedented playoff development, Jerry Pender, the Chicago Blackhawks left winger, quit the National Hockey League club in the midst of the semifinal series with the Rangers. It was believed to be the first time an NHL player had walked out on his team during what is hockey's World Series. You can tell an American reporter wrote this. Pinder, who's only 22, told friends he was leaving because of friction with Chicago coach Billy Ray. The Saskatoon native said he was receiving little to no ice time. The crowning blow, Jerry told friends, was him not playing me on Sunday in New York when we had a 7-1 to lead. Jerry said, apparently, I'm not good enough to play for a team winning by six goals. Pinder told his friends that he had planned to attend this uh, Tuesday's team meeting for a face-to-face confrontation with Coach Ray. In his criticism of the Chicago coach, Pinder said he had virtually been ignored during the two seasons that he had played in Chicago. Pender told his buddies that he wanted to emphasize that he had the highest regard for the Blackhawks players and for manager Tommy Ivan, and he hopes that the team wins the Stanley Cup. Sounds like a guy who's not going to be back, but never say never. Well, the uh, 
absence of Jerry Pinder didn't appear to really uh, affect the Chicago teammates too much, as Pinder predicted it would not. And the game lived up to the hype that had been going on. It was an evenly matched contest between two almost equally talented teams. In fact, this was a game that couldn't be decided in regulation 60 minutes. In fact, it took overtime to resolve the issue, and it was the great Bobby Hull who scored his seventh goal of these Stanley Cup playoffs to give the Hawks a 3-2 win in the crucial fifth game of the series. And Dana Mosley of the New York Daily News tells us the story of the game. It had to happen. Shut out for five plus regulation games. Bobby Hull fired one of his patented rising 25 foot shots to give the Blackhawks a 3 2 victory over the Rangers in sudden death overtime. This put Chicago ahead three games to two in the Stanley Cup semifinals with the next game and possibly the last one Thursday at Madison Square Garden in New York. Perhaps the most feared shooter in the game's history, Hull was 0 for 26 through the first five games of the series, including this fifth game when he finally busted loose, given the puck by center Pitt Martin, who drew it back from Walt Kachuk cleanly in a deep faceoff. The Golden Jet let go. The puck whizzed past Eddie Jockman's left or glove side into the net at 6:35 of the first overtime. This was New York's first setback in three sudden death experiences in these playoffs in 1971. It won the first round finale in Toronto and the first game here in overtime and this came as a staggering blow for a team that had played its heart out in this game. The Rangers had rallied from a two-goal deficit, catching up in the final minute of a second period in which Chicago was all but run out of the stadium. The Hawks were outshot in the middle frame, 13-2 by the Rangers, although they did lead in the complete game totals by a margin of 32-29. The Rangers also had the best scoring chances in the third period, particularly when Keith Magnuson was thumbed off for tripping Chief Nielsen with less than four minutes to play. But Brad Park or Roger Bear or Jean Martel wound up to try tie for the tiebreaker, but they couldn't do it. This was a game in which Coach Emil Francis, who was thoroughly discouraged by the efforts of some in a 7-1 rope by the Blackhawks in New York last Sunday, made a major shakeup in two of his lines. Big center Walt Kachuk had a new left winger as Dave Ballone was set down. He only played on the power play. Rod Sealing in a very interesting move was shifted from the defense up to left wing and Rod scored the tying goal. Rod had played defense and left wing both in his junior career so this really was not a move that would be completely foreign to the veteran defenseman. Peter Simkowski had a couple of new wingers as well. Slat Sather was on the left and Ron Stewart on the right side replacing Teddy Irvin and Bruce McGregor. Francis said, I had to tighten up the club. Uh, I felt we got a great performance defensively. Francis' shifting of the lines actually was a complete surprise to everyone. No one expected him to make such radical changes to what had been a pretty much set lineup all season. But whatever the thought behind uh, Francis's moves were, it worked and the Rangers won. 
Of course, a big factor was that Eddie Jackman, the Rangers veteran goalie, was once again stupendous between the pipes, and he certainly could not be faulted on any of the Chicago goals. Chicago's first marker was scored by defenseman Pat Stapleton, and Eddie Jackman still hasn't seen that puck. The Rangers had just killed a penalty in very fine fashion when Bob Nevin failed to clear the puck from his own zone and it wound up on Stapleton's stick back at the blue line. The red-headed defenseman uh, let a 45-foot well-screened bomb go that uh, Jackman never even realized went past him into the goal. About five minutes later, at 15.41 of the initial period, Chicago's power play made it 2 nothing. Failure to clear several hawks from the shadow of the New York cage resulted in Chico Mackey putting in another Stapleton shot. It was Stapleton's rebound that uh, Mackey beat Jackman with. It may be a little soulless now, but the Rangers did equal and break a club playoff record when Vic Hadfield scored only 16 seconds later. Given the puck by Jean Rattel, Vic beat Tony Esposito with a 15-footer, and this was the left winger's eighth playoff goal, tying him with Cecil Dillon's record effort back in 1933. Rattel's assist on that marker was also a, a momentous occasion. It was his eighth assist and was one more than Neil Colville's previous club standard established in 1940, which just happened to be the last time the New York Rangers have won the Stanley Cup. The countdown to the second period buzzer had already begun. With 32 seconds left, Bobby Nevin outmuscled Pat Stapleton for possession of the puck behind the Chicago goal. Nevy passed out in front to Kachuk, who shot from a wide left angle, and Sealing being credited with the goal when it ricocheted into the net off his shin bone. There was no kicking motion, as they would say 50 years later. It was ironic that Hull's seventh playoff goal, he had six in the four games it took to dispose of the Flyers, would result from one of the few face-offs that the Rangers lost all night. It was just one of those bang-bang things, Francis concluded. You rarely get a clear-cut draw loss like that. Emil Francis summed things up by saying it was awfully tough to lose this time after getting such a great performance from everyone. Now, we have to have a supreme effort on Thursday. Yes, the Rangers need a supreme effort or the season will be over. So Thursday night it was back to Madison Square Garden for game six and uh, perhaps uh, buoyed by the Hawks overtime win at home everything started it seemed to break for the Hawks as Jerry Pinder reversed his stance and said he was going to return to the Chicago club and Bob Verde of the Chicago Tribune tells us what's going on. Verdi writes that Lafare Jerry Pinder apparently is over just as suddenly as it erupted. The 22-year-old Blackhawks winger yesterday apologized for Monday's verbal outburst during which he claimed he was quitting the team because he had been, quote, shafted and lied to by coach Billy Ray all season. Pinder said, I thought it over and I'm afraid I blew my stack a little. This had built up in me and I'm sorry I did what I did. Jerry went on to say that anything he said that was detrimental to the rest of the players, the organization, and especially to Coach Ray, he regrets. Jerry said, I owe them all my apologies. I'd like to see the Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup 
and I'd like to be part of it. Pinder personally apologized to Coach Ray yesterday morning, then joined the team for its mid-afternoon flight to New York for Thursday's game against the Rangers. Well, Game 6 at Madison Square Garden lived up to all the expectations that every pretty much everyone had. It was another barn burner, a game that could have gone either way and almost did several times. It was yet another game that would require extra time to settle the issue, but this time the game was not decided until the third overtime period before one team would finally prevail, and on this night that team would be the New York Rangers. Now Horton starts out. We're a minute 20 into overtime period three. Horton to center from the red line. He slaps wide. Right side of us. We sit on the rebound. Irvin shoots there. Oh, oh, Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times gives us the game report and he writes it while a crowd too stunned to cheer suddenly gasped. The Rangers scored a memorable 3-2 playoff victory in the third overtime in Force the seventh game against the Blackhawks. And 50 years later, this game is still regarded as one of the classics. It was two minutes to midnight, four hours and 23 minutes after the game had started when Pete Stemkowski slashed at a rebound and sent it home. For the big lumbering Stemkowski, it was his second overtime score of this 4-7 series, and it nodded the semifinal Stanley Cup series at three victories apiece. When the red light went on one minute and 29 seconds after the third sudden death overtime period had started, Stemkowski still didn't know what he'd scored. Then he heard the crowd and felt his teammates pulling and hugging him. After the second overtime, the oxygen tank was wheeled into the New Yorker's dressing room. Brad Park, the young defenseman, took a whiff and he said he felt sleepy. Park mentioned, gee, I'm sick and tired of coming in and going out between periods. I wish the damn game was over. And of course, soon it was, but not after an elapsed playing time of 101 minutes and 29 seconds, making it the longest overtime game in Rangers history since March 27th. 1938 and that was when the New York Americans defeated the Rangers at 125 in the morning 40 seconds into the fourth overtime and that was at the old garden on 50th. In this game in the new garden it was warm humid and it actually seemed impossible that the teams were doing the things they were doing on the ice which was basically melting but there were a few letdowns in a game dominated by the Rangers who missed repeatedly close in chances. We never stopped said Rod Sealing. I had all summer to rest if we had lost. It's like that old uh, saying you can sleep when you're dead. The winning goal came about like this. A Ranger power play had just ended when Ted Irvin had the disc in the Hawk zone. Stemkowski hollered for the puck, but he didn't think anybody was going to hear him. Irvin didn't hear him uh, screaming, so Irvin took the shot. Stemkowski said, I, I really didn't mind. The puck slammed off Tony Esposito and the Chicago goalie who rarely elects to catch shots. And on this play, it didn't look like he would have been able to catch it anyway. But the puck bounced to Stemkowski and suddenly... 
the game was owner, but there was a mass delayed reaction affected by uh, the 17,250 fans. They bellowed, they raised their fists, hugging whatever was close enough, tossing programs towards the roof and eventually onto the ice. The longest game uh, in NHL history had taken place back in 1936 and ended when Mud Brunetto of the Detroit Red Wings the six, scored in the sixth overtime to defeat the Montreal Maroons at 2.25 in the morning. But to Tim Horton, the Rangers veteran defenseman, this seemed like it was to him the longest game in history. Now the seventh game goes Sunday afternoon in Chicago at 2 p.m. New York time on the CBS television network. Of course, game seven would be in Chicago Stadium, and that was not a pleasant prospect for the Rangers, all things considered, but better than the alternative, which would be to not play at all. And what a showcase for the NHL this game actually could be. A seventh game United States National Television Network between the two largest media markets in the entire country. The league couldn't ask for anything more, and this game actually just hyped itself. If you read the papers around the league, everybody expected a close game, just like the previous two, and an overtime game in Game 7 is something particularly special to folks of my vintage, and even to people these days, but in those days, overtime was something special, giving that all regular season games were decided or not decided after 60 minutes. Well, the game didn't disappoint, although it didn't go to overtime. It featured great playoff hockey and outstanding goalkeeping. And in the end, that is what lifted Chicago to their 4-2 win and right to face the Montreal Canadiens in the final. And once again, the New York Times provides us with a bit of a game report. The imposing presence of Bobby Hull with his extraordinary slap shot proved more potent than the Rangers' depth and the Blackhawks triumphed 4-2 and won their semifinal Stanley Cup series. The Hawks will play the Canadians in the final with the first game scheduled at Chicago Tuesday night. It was a seventh and decisive game in the 4-7 affair and the score was tied in the final period at 2-all as both clubs demonstrated resiliency and desire following their 4-hour 23-minute match on Thursday evening. But as happens so often, hockey games can turn on one play and that's what happened in this game. One shot filled with irony. Hull, who has a career average of better than a goal every two games, had been held to just one score in the first six games, albeit that one score was a big one. That was on Thursday in overtime when his center, Pitt Martin, took a face-off from Walkachuk and shoveled it to Hull. Martin was on the bench early in the third period today, suffering from a muscle bruise on his right knee. So Louis Angotti, a bench warmer most of the time, replaced Martin at center, and he made the same play against Walton Chuck. He snapped the pass to Hull. This time, said a beaming Hull after the game, I had time for the slapper. I popped it, and it went in higher than the goal I scored last week. In a desperate effort, in the final 65 seconds, the Rangers pulled Eddie Jackman out of the nets and put six skaters on the ice. But Chico Mackey hit the empty net in the final seconds to crush the Rangers, who, after four years of playoff mediocrity, had finally showed the brilliance, the same brilliance that they had exhibited 
during the regular National Hockey League season. At the end of the game, with more than 20,000 fans saluting their team, the Hawks lined up in the customary winner's receiving line. But half the Rangers left the ice and didn't bother to shake hands, and thousands in the crowd understandably booed. And as Coach Emil Francis walked off the ice, staring straight ahead, papers and cups fell round him. Chicago coach Billy Ray actually defended uh, Francis' action. He said that handshaking business is hypocritical anyway. Rangers forward Rod Gilbert probably spoke for the entire team when he says, what's there to say about an ending like this? No, there's no satisfaction for the way we played in the two series. It came down to one period and it came down to one shot. So there it was, the final Stanley Cup final series was now set, and I think we all thought, boy, this is going to be a good one. The well-rested Canadians would be playing the Blackhawks coming off an extremely tough, debilitating series against the Rangers. Next week, we start the series. We'll have all the uh, early games for you, all the coverage, and we'll tell you how the series is going to unfold over the next two episodes. Our final story this week is kind of a very uh, interesting one. It's more of an off-season story than a playoff story, and uh, it was big news. The story emerged on Monday and really was a, an ongoing thing all week and into the next week, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, the scoop, as it were, came from a very unlikely source. The Regina Leader Post, in a copyright story, reported that Scotty Bowman had resigned as general manager of the St. Louis Blues. The newspaper said that Bowman, who'd been with the club since its inception in the National Hockey League in 1967, fell into a dispute with a member of the Solomon family, which owns the club. The result was an ultimatum for Bowman. Do things the Solomon's way or don't do them at all. The Leader Post reported that Coach Al Arbor and Chief Scout Frank Mario are both protégés of Bowden, and they could end up on the outside as well should the upheaval go beyond the position of general manager. There was, according to the story, no indication as to who Bowman's successor might be, but defenseman Carl Brewer in the story was mentioned as a possible candidate, and of course that's a signal let the rumors begin. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch the main paper in St. Louis picked up on the story right away and, and uh, they wrote it Gary Muller was the reporter wrote amid reports that general manager Scotty Bowman has left the Blues the Post-Dispatch learned that trainer Tommy Woodcock definitely has been dismissed and according to a reliable source assistant general manager Cliff Fletcher also had been let go by the team. The paper reported that neither Bowman nor team owner Sid Solomon Jr. would say that Scotty had been fired and neither would say that Bowman would be back with the team next season. Tommy Woodcock though, he spoke up. He said, I received a note from Bill Combs, who's controller of the Missouri Arena Corporation, that I will not be back next year. Woodcock had been the Blues trainer since the team was formed for the 1967-68 season and he said that at this point he had not yet talked to Mr. Solomon. Fletcher, who for many years uh, 
was working in the Montreal Canadiens uh, organization, worked with Bowman actually quite a bit in their job, served as Bowman's assistant with the Blues for the past two years. He had been chiefly responsible for overseeing the Blues scouting staff and also was the general manager of the Blues farm team in Kansas City, and that just happened in a mid-season shakeup there just a few months ago. Fletcher has been described as the man who knows Scotty Bowman the best. So at this point in time, early in the week, it was not clear exactly what was going on, uh, whether Scotty had resigned, whether he had been fired, or whether he even was not coming back to the team. But the story did develop over the week that Bowman would not return. It was pretty well confirmed by the Solomons, but the circumstances still had not been established. Well, there was a lot going on this week. There was a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, speculation. The next week would bring out even more comments and speculation over Bowman's future. And we're going to put that into one of our special overtime episodes for our Patreon subscribers. Well, we'll give you the background. We'll describe the meetings that took place and exactly how it happened and where Scotty Bowman was going to end up. And for at least the rest of the playoffs, we had no idea for sure where he would be going. So stay tuned for that. That will be in an upcoming episode on our Patreon subscriber series of Overtime. So that's our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn this time around? Well, we learned that the Canadians would finally take control of their semifinal against the North Stars. And they skated off with a win in Game 6, earning the right to face the winner of the Chicago Rangers series. And of course, that series, we learned, went the seven-game distance with the Hawks emerging victorious in a game that went right down to the wire in the final contest. And we learned this week that Scotty Bowman was out as general manager of the Blues, but many questions remain, not the least of which was, did Scotty fall or was he pushed? Here's some of the stories we're working on for next week's show. Well... The Stanley Cup Final for 1971 gets underway amid much anticipation for a series that, uh, according to the predictors, could go either way because people were picking both teams as being able to win. We'll have lots of those predictions for you next week. Scotty Bowman's departure from St. Louis sparked a number of rumors, and we'll have the best of them for you as well. And the Blues actually hired a replacement for Scotty Bowman, And uh, that will prove that one of those rumors that was floating around was actually true. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for everything that he's doing with our podcast. And he's a real media professional. He produces podcasts. If you're interested in starting one up, get a hold of me and I'll hook the two of you up. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction and exit music. If you ever get a chance once things open up again to see them perform live, don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great show. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Global Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find our reports every day on Twitter at at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page 50 years ago on hockey. We have a WordPress site, hockey50yearsago.com. You can get the podcast anytime on the Hockey Podcast Network or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. 
Thanks again for tuning into our show each week, everyone. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice breaks.